Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Well, here we are, um, ladies and gentlemen, the day, the big day has arrived. The Sue Gray Circle Partygate report is out. Whew, and boy, do most journalists look like all of their Christmases have come at once for weeks and months now, much of the mainstream media. They've been frothing at the mouth with sheer excitement at the prospect that when we were locked up in our houses, unable to leave, uh, except, of course, to do things like go on protest marches, uh, they were hoping that the Tory party were having nigh-on raves in their offices. Got to be honest, though, I dread to think how many words have been typed about it, how many pages dominated, interviews conducted... There's even been documentaries produced about it. All the while, of course, we've seen said mainstream journalists suspended from their jobs for uh, breaking the exact same rules. The opposition parties themselves have had an absolute field day, haven't they, leveraging the stories of human suffering in an attempt to gain cheap political gains, ignoring, of course, the fact that they actually voted in the inhumane rules which caused that suffering in the first place. Let's not forget, of course, that the leader of the Labour Party... He's currently under investigation for, you guessed it, also breaking the rules. I say often, don't I, that I despair at the cruel rules that meant that many of your loved ones died alone, many of you missed funerals, and many, myself included, by the way, were forced to be alone in hospitals for long periods of time. But these sandwiches and orange juice and booze gatherings at work simply were not the same thing. They simply are not the same. So, from what I've learned today after reading that report, is that, quite frankly, I'm no more interested in Partygate now than I was before. But the only silver lining is that now the report is actually out, maybe, just maybe, the media will drop their weird obsession, move on and start to focus on the things that actually matter. I can but dream. Well, keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight, my panel, we've got PR consultant Alex Dean, chair of the Oxford Conservatives, William Hall, and Labour councillor Pimana Assad. And you know the drill on Jubes & Co, it's not just about us, it's about you at home. What's on your mind tonight? Get in touch with me, gbviews at gbnews.uk. You can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews. Don't forget, if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our YouTube page. You can download our app. We've got a podcast. Uh, and if you're sitting there thinking to yourself, oh, I love Jubes & Co, but I also need to go to the shop, worry not. You can take us with you. We're on DAB Plus Radio as well. So wherever you are, you are very, very welcome indeed. Now, I promised you, didn't I, uh, almost a party gate-free show tonight. I do like to have though, a little bit of integrity and what I've always maintained uh, across this whole ridiculous saga is that even when there was a development, I would uh, focus on it. I'd give a little bit of attention at least. But what I feel is exactly what I've just been describing. I worry about all of this because when you see much of the political uh, journalism, the mainstream media, they're beside themselves with excitement about all of this. Uh, I happen to look at it and I think it's all ridiculous. I've thought it pretty much from the beginning and I still feel it now. I think if anything, uh, Alex, it almost turns people off politics because I think I worry about things like turnouts uh, in general elections. I certainly worry about it in local elections. 
people are often disengaged. You have the Westminster bubble, the political bubble. Then you have what I would just basically call the real world. The more that we do stuff like this, obsessing about ridiculousness, the more we kind of create a void. Where do you stand on it? Well, well I agree. I, this is a media-propelled story at, at this point. And the funny thing about that is it's a media-propelled story in the face, not of the Tory party alone, but of politics more generally. I watched with interest the interview that Colin Brazier did with Barry Gardner and before on your, on your yeah. channel just before this show, um, bef which was very interesting. And before Gardner lost his temper because someone asked him about Chinese money going to his office, he actually gave a very interesting answer about Partygate, which was that in his view, nobody's mind is going to be changed by the Grey report. Mm. People have made up their mind already. They were either for the Prime Minister or against him and nothing you see in that report is going to change it. Now, that is an indicator of two things. First, the Labour Party knows it's exposed itself because of the accusations against the leader of the opposition, whatever you think of them. Mm -hmm. And secondly, the Labour Party wants to get on to cost of living, energy crisis, fuel crisis uh, and uh, food issues and so forth. That's where they think they're going to make inroads into the next election. They think, I think rightly, they're not going to make any headway on party gain. So the perverse thing is, we've now got a so-called political crisis being driven pretty much solely by the media. Mm, indeed. William, welcome. You're a newbie on Jubes and Car, aren't you? Exciting to have you. Yeah. Uh, your thoughts briefly? Um, it, basically, that um, it's quite clear when you actually talk to anyone outside the Westminster bubble, outside the journalism bubble, that people are more concerned about the cost of living, they're more concerned about Ukraine, about energy security, about all the issues that the PM got a stonking majority on only a couple of years ago. So, from my perspective, it was very serious. He apologised. It's time to move on and it's time to deliver what people actually want and not what the media want. Good. And do you think uh, we can now put to bed any of this talk about um, leadership competitions, uh, no confidence votes, etc.? Forget about all that? Absolutely. I think it's only the people who really, really desperately don't want him to deliver on what he uh, promised that are very keen to continue that conversation. I think the Conservative Party at large is settled focused on the next election, focused on delivering in the next couple of years, and knows that there is a big disconnect between what you hear in the, in the newspapers, on the telly, and what people actually care about because it's impacting their lives. Pamana? So obviously I have a lot to say about this and I disagree with your other two guests. Um, I don't think we are obsessed about this issue. I think that we demand truth and integrity from the top, which we haven't got. Um, and if senior Tory uh, Conservatives like Tobias Elwood can stand up in the House of Commons and actually question the Prime Minister's position, and he's not being uh, questioned as being obsessed about this, then why are the opposition? The job of the opposition is, one, to provide alternative policies um, countering the government, and two, holding the government to account. So there needs to be a check and balance type of issue, which the Labour Party is offering in this moment in time. And I don't agree um, with Alex, actually. 74% of people in a snap poll today by YouGov believe that the Prime Minister knowingly lied. Um, and th three out of five Brits say that the Prime Minister should resign. So I don't think that this is just an issue led by the media or just an issue led by the Labour Party. I think this is an issue that loads of people care about because at the end of the day, what what happened is the Prime Minister held parties in number 10 and he's saying his defence is... Parties. Say, well, he, Let me look well, at your no, face. Is that a straight face? No, that is a straight face. That's he, not a that's party. A, no, but Come it on, it's ridiculous. He, he held parties in number 10 in order to say goodbye to colleagues. That's his defence. But there were people dying in hospital that could not say goodbye to their loved ones. It's I think not that the same. Well, I think it is. Do you, do you it's know, the, not. The, 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 I think pro it is. the problem with this, you... I'm afraid, is that it, it just continues to put people off politics because mm. what they see 
is is a centre and a bubble that is just obsessed with the gamemanship of it, just just the fun of it. In reality, the, politics is far more serious than that. It's not a game. It's about real issues that actually affect people. And I worry that all this distraction, this fireworks, means that what we're not doing is focusing on the really core issues like the cost of living, like ensuring our national defence, like waking up to the fact that we have been very casual about an emerging threat from Russia for years. I think, you know, the sort of thing we're hear hearing here really is putting politics above country, in my view. I agree. It does erode democracy. But you know why it erodes democracy? Because we've got someone in the in number 10 who's lying to the public, who knowingly misled parliament, who stood up and said, no, these parties no, did not happen. That's, and then in this report... That's it's not right that, at all. No, but what it harms is, politics did, is people making assertions it, that, like that. That erodes democracy. When you are standing up there and you have no accountability, you've lied to the public, you are not taking any accountability for this, you've given this, an apology that people Michelle, genuinely... You is, should, Alex, you should issue. read the comments under Oliver... Dowden, the Conservative Party chair's uh, tweet today. Yeah, I'm sure Twitter responses on. is the well, key thing I should do. No, but I think that pe I think that gives you a general consensus of what is what people Twitter, feel. Twitter isn't the real world. Oh yeah, of and course the, it's not the real world. The, but people are angry out there, and as the snap poll today shows, three out of five Brits believe that the prime minister should resign. This is the trouble. That I was, this is the point I was seeking to make. The corrosive thing in politics is that people think if they say something enough, if they call someone a name enough, if they throw a word enough, if they allege something enough, then it becomes true. And if they just call the, our, the Prime Minister of our country a liar enough, then that will stick. You know, apart from anything else, I wonder what, as we go through negotiating about the future of our friends in Ukraine, I wonder what our enemies make of somebody who just goes merrily around calling our Prime Minister a liar. He didn't knowingly mislead parliaments. And you know what? Sometimes you should think before you say things which are basically, in the end, corrosive of democracy. You invite people to use that same kind of ammunition against your side. And you know what? We shouldn't. I can't believe that this is your defence, that you're trying to defend. He stood up and the, the member for Hornsey and Woodgreen, Catherine West, asked him, were there any parties in Down Downing Street, number 10, during lockdown? He said, he stood up and he said no. No, she didn't. She, she did. said, can you tell us what happened on date X? Was there a party? And he said, no. I think maybe no. you watch the clip. And forgive me, you asked a question, I'm going to answer it. She said, was, can you tell us what happened on date X? Was there a party? He said, no, but I'm sure that all rules were followed. The no meaning, no, I can't tell you what happened on date X. You know, because he was confronted with it at the dispatch box. He this is the problem. Yeah. I believe that Keir Starmer is a fundamentally decent man trying to do the right thing in politics who may or may not get some things wrong. I think Boris Johnson is a fundamentally decent man trying to do the right thing in politics who may or may not get some things wrong. Your position, which you just want to call people corrupt or lying and so forth... I have not is used the word really corrupt at all in anything that I've just said. I I've said that he is a liar. No, he's which consistently he has, called our prime minister is. a liar. Well, he is. He is, and I, and you, I fundamentally you, well, believe that. Well, there we, there we are. And well you done. You probably think that Keir Starmer is guilty for breaking lockdown rules and whatever. Yes, but I don't but call him to resign. I don't call him a liar. But, I don't call him names. The Conservatives have always called him names. Even Boris Johnson today in the comments called him various names. But let's not go there. Let, let, let me let me say. What, let's not what, go there. You did. No, but here's the thing. Keir Starmer has stood up and said that if he had he's broken any rules, he will resign. That's taking accountability for anything that he might. No, have no, done no, 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 no. He didn't say that. What but, he said was, if he gets a, if he basically gets a fixed penalty notice, he would resign. And he stood there very confidently, Pramana, and he said that because he knows full well that the policy of the Durham police is not to issue those kind of things for those kind of uh, incidents. So you know that, and I know that. And this entire thing, including all of that, by the way, is utterly ridiculous. We've been out and about talking to viewers, asking their thoughts uh, on this whole kind of situation. Let's hear from uh, people, see what they think out on the streets. I mean... I don't know. I'm not great with the whole politics thing. But I feel like he's, he was put in a very
very difficult position when we came into Covid, but now he's a bit of a numpty, but that's good for him. Probably, yeah. He's probably the one who set the rules, he probably should have followed them. Um, I think he's a hypocrite, <laughs> and I don't think he really knows what he's doing half the time. Um, I think he just kind of, I don't know who helps him make his decisions, but I just think that common sense isn't very common when it comes to him. Um, yeah, and I just, yeah, as we all know, he says one thing and then does the other. So yeah, he's a big hypocrite. I think he should, should have quit. It's all right in saying this, that and the other, and then go against what he's telling people. That to me is not being a proper prime minister, is it? And you think he should resign? I think he should go, yeah, definitely. Well, lots of people are getting in contact with us as well directly about this. Terence says, I've got no interest in the Sue Gray report. It's a socialist plot to destroy our economy by undermining our government at a time where we need certainty. Uh, someone else, Pimas, said that, of course, we should care about this report. It is about the integrity of our prime minister and the people who govern our country. Um, Terry says, I've never in my life seen the media go into such a frenzy over the Prime Minister holding up a glass in a retirement setting. The media have turned their hardest, uh, tried their hardest to turn the public against Brexit and failed. He says that the majority of the public can apparently see this. Uh, Lynn says... I am absolutely sick of all of this. Now that Sue Gray has finished her report, can she and the rest of her team be redeployed to the passport office where people are at the end of their tether trying to get a passport? And Susie says, I am utterly fed up with listening to all of this partygate nonsense. Enough. Stop it. That's what Susie says. Well, Susie, consider it stopped. <laughs> Hello there, I'm Michelle Dubry. This is Jubes & Co. Keeping me company tonight until 7 o'clock at my panel, PR consultant Alex Dean, Chair of the Oxford Conservatives, William Hall, and Labour Councillor Pimana Assad. Lots of uh, feedback coming in uh, during the break about that last topic, so-called Partygate. Um, and just looking at some of the reactions we've got and a little brief panel conversation here, and it really got me um, kind of thinking, really, about the ease at which we really quickly call people names. Like, quite bad names by the way not I'm not talking about just the last story I'm talking about in general you know like in this day and age the ease in which people call someone else a racist or a transphobe or a liar or whatever that actually they're quite damning things to call somebody but the ease in which we do so seems to be out of control because really what we mean is I don't agree with your opinion we seem to have lost the ability, Alex, yeah. to simply say that, and instead we launch into these attacks. I, think, that, I think that's right. And at least with the, um, the point about you're a liar is that hopefully you can demonstrate that you weren't lying, you were either telling the truth or you were mistaken rather than deliberately putting forth a falsehood. But with the other kinds of terms that you're talking about, they're much harder to rebut, they're diffuse, right? They're very easy to throw, and once thrown they stick and they're very hard to, to remove from people. And that's one of the reasons that it's so bad. There's a reason, after all, we were reflecting in the break, there's a reason, after all, that in Parliament there are terms you can't use about other members of Parliament, one being, you know, that you're a liar. This just means that parliamentarians create... or have all sorts of ways of getting round those rules to find a way of calling someone, you know, being um, economical with the actuality instead of lying. But, you know, the point is, in the end, is there are things about uh, people you shouldn't say, and, uh, I mean, unless it's in real extreme 
extremists. You shouldn't say, because actually it undercuts the whole point of honest debate and honest exchange. And I think in good faith, both sides can do better than that. Yeah, and I think anyway, when you start calling, if, if everyone's this and everyone's that, then it just undermines the concept of anyone being this and that in the first place, because if that's what everyone is, it's like, oh, come on, you're just diluting the effect. William? Do you know, I think uh, free speech has been under threat for a long time in the UK. And part of that is because people want to cancel each other. They don't want to engage with other people's viewpoints. They want to say, you don't have the right to say that to me. We're seeing it in universities creeping up. Uh, speakers, I mean, um, you have speakers who've been gay rights activists for 30, 40 years being cancelled because for some strange reason, uh, they're not part of the latest thinking on a certain area. It's very clear that we have to continually fight to have the opportunity to live in a free society where you can say what you like to each other and have a genuine debate. Democracy is about two people disagreeing. It's not about one person calling another person a name and just fighting it out. And I, I think this is a long-term problem that is only going to get worse the more and more we allow it to happen. Pamana? I think sometimes when we use, especially the words like extremism, fascist and all the rest, it starts to lose meaning um, and people start to not believe um, that that is what can actually exist or, or someone can actually be that. Um, I, you know, I, I, in the previous story, I said that Boris Johnson lied in Parliament, um, and I believe that that is true. And there are disagreements on this table about that. However, um, I think that, you know, just before I came on here, I actually tweeted saying that I know that my views on Partygate will get me a barrage of hate on, online. And that is what happened. Well, uh, I certainly you know, hope not. But, but, but that is what has happened, um, especially when you come on GB News. I mean, when I go on other channels, it happens too, but yes. not to such an extent. I feel and the it's same, really when, I'm hard. On, I feel the same yeah, when I'm exactly. on the BBC. And it's really hard, and it shouldn't be like that. We shouldn't want to want to cancel each I, other I agree. just for but, our opinion. But my point, I would, I decry anyone calling you names, and they, mm. they shouldn't call you names any more than when I'm on another channel. People might call me, or on this channel, people call me names. Mm. And they, I would disapprove strongly of that, because I think that we should be able to argue it out, and ultimately, a term that seems to have been forgotten in the United Kingdom, agree to disagree. Mm. Yeah. Sure. Well, yeah, I think it's not even just in the UK, you know, Alex. I think it's much broader. People almost seem to be incapable of tolerating a different view. You know, people will have their worldviews, their different perspectives and all the rest of it. And if someone disagrees, then yeah, unleashes a that's fury. True. Think about how much worse this conversation would be if Permana weren't here, right? We have to have... We, the debate is important. Mm. It, it's great. We've got to have the full... I, I deplore people if anyone's calling you names. I, I'm really sorry that that's happening and it shouldn't happen. But I think that we, we only have true debate if we seek to have it properly, you know, robustly, but civilly. Yeah, Indeed. and same here from the other side, you know, using words like Tory scum and all the rest of it, it's not OK. And it's, yeah, it was and it's the deputy leader of the opposition. Yeah. Mm, well, there you go. Let's talk social media, shall we? Um, are you on it? Do you use it? Do you like it? Do you think it's a force for good? Uh, and are you one of those people that simply cannot put your telephone down? You cannot get off social media. Well, if you're an adult, that's one thing. And social media companies, they'll probably love it, uh, won't they? They're, that's their whole kind of business model, isn't it? Get you on there, get you hooked. Before you know it, your whole night's gone, hasn't it? You've been scrolling through a load of random nonsense and you look at your clock and it's time for bed. Well, in the US, in California specifically, they're looking now to create a law that would allow parents to sue these companies if their children become addicted to their products. So we're talking things like TikTok, Facebook, whatever. And I'll start with you, I think, on this, William, because as I've just explained, the business model, if you like, of a social media company is to get people on there and get them stuck on there and stayed on there. 
as a child, to me, I think it's the responsibility of the parent as to what they're doing and for how long. Like a parent, I think you can always take your kid's phone off them. But now, if this passes in California, you can sue for up to $25,000 to these companies. Absolutely. I mean, it's very clear to me that how you bring your child up is your business, except for when it comes to keeping them safe from criminality. Interestingly, the US approach uh, typically when it comes to policy making is to allow a commercialization of incentives. So in other words, to give the opportunity for people to sue an organization. In the UK, we're taking the approach with the online harms bill of protecting children from criminality and other behavior by making it illegal. And I think the distinction between illegality and, and criminal behavior targeting children and just keeping children, raising children in the way you want them to is the key point here. I would say, from my own limited experience, and uh, not having a child myself, that um, we often um, think that screens and technology are the immediate way to go, particularly with classroom learning and other forms of, of education. I think it would be a good idea to, uh, to continue to support children in uh, getting out there, being active, more physical education in schools, more enjoying the world. There's plenty of time to spend a career in front of a computer to come. For now, Let's try and keep childhood childhood. And where do you stand on this, Pamela? I mean, do you think a parent should be able to sue a social media company if their child is addicted? I think that companies have a responsibility to make sure that their content <clears throat> online is safe for young people and for children spe specifically, because we've seen, you know, youngsters um, self-harm. Um, I'm sure you've read reports online about how young people look at some of this content and start self-harming, or some have even committed suicide. I think companies have a responsibility to keep their content on safe levels so that people don't go towards that. I think it's really difficult when it comes to parenting and children. Um, in this day and age when parents are so focused on making a living um, and putting a roof over their head and food on the table, sometimes it's much easier for them to just put an iPad in front of their kids, um, you know, and to just get on with it. And so they become addicted. I think it's really difficult. It's, it's a hard one to, to really say if whether they should be able to, to sue social media companies. But, but, is it? Is it hard? Because I don't think they should but, be able but, to. Sorry, to be clear, though, uh, what you're saying are two different things. One, keeping them safe from people who would encourage them to harm themselves. Yeah. Or that, that's criminal behaviour. Mm. That should and is being made illegal. In the online safety the, bill. Yes. Exactly. The distinction, however, comes to when we're talking about how you raise your child. Do you want them to be outside or do you want to be reading books or do you want to, whatever it is, including whether you want them to have access to social media? That is really a matter for parents. But I mean, I... It's, it's up to individual choice. I very carefully prefaced my answer by saying I'm not a parent myself, so what right do I have to lecture other people? I think it's perfectly reasonable to assume individual responsibility from a parent is the right way to go. So I think that there's multiple things that are probably at play here. One is that childcare is very expensive. So maybe some parents find it difficult to send their kids mm, to, to sure. do outdoor activities or go and play with other children. And therefore, they sit them at home and give them yep. an iPad. And that's much more easier for them. I think there needs to be options outside, freely available for parents to be able... I don't have children myself, so I can't really judge this on, on that kind you of You do, matter. Alex. You have children. <laughs> I'm afraid not. So you got <laughs> oh, you don't have children? <laughs> Thank you very much. What? Uh, so, um, no, you've got I a bad pamphlet one, haven't you? No, think of somebody else. No offence taken. Oh, I thought you had two children. OK, how many, why not say five? If I they're imagined? Why can't I, I have, have ten? Yeah. I feel this cheated. Is, this is quite I could, alarming. That I've I could have a football team of kids in your imagination. I don't know why. Oh, I thank you very much. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so true that you know I've I've got friends who've very kindly made me their children's godparent, and you know there are times you have to put a child in front of, in front of a screen because actually that's the reality of modern parenting. What I'm talking about though is is the issue here, which is that actually 
Should we be saying companies are responsible for the way in which parents raise well, their children? Hang on, I mean, what, what's the end of that? Are we going to start having McDonald's being sued for obesity? I'll give you a slightly alternative perspective from this child-free guest that you've got, uh, myself included, <laughs> uh, which is that I think technology is fantastic. It's going to be a big part of the uh, future, whether you like it or not. And children learning to use technology with their parents is a very good thing. Some of the stories that have driven the law that they're seeking to enact in the United States are, of course, very sad. One of the examples I remember is a guy called CJ Dawley, who took his life age 17 because he was apparently, supposedly addicted to Instagram. And his parents would say he stays up until 3 a.m. every day. To which, of course, first of all, they'd have to prove it wasn't just an addictive personality and you might have got addicted to something else. But secondly, it naturally begs the question, why didn't you stop him? Mm. Right, And there's a, there's a role for parents in this discussion, I think, which we all agree with. But the ultimate driver has got to be equipping children to go out and grow up into adulthood will involve technology, whether you like it or not. Yeah, see, I am a parent, uh, albeit my kid's very young, so he doesn't have devices or anything like that. But ultimately, I just think we have this society where someone's always trying to blame somebody else oh. for the ills. You know, oh, my child's this, my child's that, but it's not my fault, it's, it's your fault, it's their fault, it's this person's fault. And I actually think that when it comes to your child, the first thing you should do is look inward to yourself. Yeah. You should look inward to yourself. What have I done? Have I contributed to this situation? Uh, have I done everything possible to try and help, resolve, prevent the situation? And only then should one start to even consider I, looking outward. I, I think that's really hard, though, because, yeah. I, I mean, I just think back to when I was in a teenager and MSN was the thing um, that all teenagers <laughs> were using at the time. And I was pretty addicted to, to MSN, going on there after school, ch chatting to my friends and stuff. And my when parents you say you hated were addicted, that. Don't you mean you liked it? I liked it, but I was on there all the time. And my mum hated yeah. it and she but tried to get me off. Some kids play football you know? all the time. Some kids play computer games all the time. Some kids use social media. Uh, but but I, I, I think what you have, you have here is a great example, though. You have three people, none of whom have par are parents. And why on earth, with our lack of experience, should we lecture other people about how to do their own parents? We were all children fun, once. Fun, mm -hmm. We were all children once, and I remember that I date myself by saying it was um, Mario Kart and the N64 that I was addicted to when I was a child. But, you know... I just think, in, in America, the litigious society, it's very different from ours. And here, I think, we have, a, in the UK, a very proud tradition of individual responsibility, and I would include parents in that. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, my viewers tonight, they're not, they're not uh, on the fence. Dennis says, it's all about personal choice. You bring it all on yourself. Everything nowadays is a mental health excuse. He says, stop blaming everyone else, grow up. And then he goes a step further and says, bring back national service. That'll sort all the youth out. I've got to say, uh, national service? Do you want to see a return to national service? Sort out the young uns? My father would always have said it was the one time when everyone in society came together. And that's not actually a left-wing view or a right-wing view. It's quite an interesting point, isn't it? That no matter how high you were in society or how low, it was a time when the whole of society came together in an idea of shared endeavour. And furthermore, a lot of people learned skills they didn't have on national service. A lot of people got fed properly for the first time. A lot of people learned remedial things like reading and writing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not a fix for everything, but I think, it, it, and it also gave you a sense of discipline. So I think there was something to it. I'm not necessarily endorsing it. I'm just, given that you were frowning at it, I'm Well, no, I'm frowning at it only because I've got a son and I wouldn't appreciate it just because he happens to hit 17 or whatever, him being called up to get involved in some war that we probably have no business being involved in. It doesn't in necessarily, mean to, necessarily have to mean deployment, does it? It can be national service in, in a way that prepares you for that form of life and, and that you do good works. Now, you may go on to join our armed forces and I think 
there would probably be strong agreement on this panel. That's a good life choice if that's what you want to do. Uh, but you know, it's not necessary that you have to do that. And I think, too, in this day and age, 17-year-olds aren't going to get deployed to the front line anyway. In fact, I think it's unlawful. Uh, it is. And I think you'd find that having that national service would be completely contrary to the direction of travel of our military professionalised, yeah. which is a professionalised, well-trained, well-equipped, smaller, uh, uh, highly mobile armed forces. I think uh, nas uh, national service, in terms of teaching children and teaching people those kinds of discipline and life skills, the cadet and uniformed associations in the UK already fulfil that pro project. So, you know, they and, do. and, and, and you, cadets, were, you were yeah. saying actually quite rightly that it does cost money. In, in many instances, to keep children active, to get them outside. So rather than forcing people to do it, let's make these things more readily available. Let's increase uh, take up in the cadet forces. Let's increase take up in the scout movement. You know, that could be a real national project. Yeah, I think that people probably don't realise that the cadets and the that, that that is something available to young people to get involved in because it does help them with life skills and mm. it does set them up for really good employment opportunities. John has just emailed in saying, why should the armed services be landed with teenagers just because their parents can't cope with them. So I think that's a fair point, right? And, I, and we're getting a bit, coming away from the idea of individual responsibility to discuss at national service. And I, let's return to that a little bit, but use a different parallel. I watched some really eloquent, thoughtful, bright teenagers on television this week saying, the Prime Minister has to ban junk food advertising before nine o'clock because I know this food is really bad for me and having it on television somehow makes me eat it. <laughs> Hang on a minute, you worked out it was bad, right? You're, you're eloquent enough to go on national television and say to the Prime Minister, take it off the box. Why don't you just stop eating it? <laughs> mm, well, that would, uh, that would include an element of personal responsibility, Alex, and as we discuss often, that is sadly lacking in this society, isn't it? Stuart says, Social media is a cesspit of everything that is and has gone wrong in the world and society. Uh, I'd be interested in your views, Stuart. You know, we've just been locked down, haven't we, for a year or so, whatever it was, two years. Social media was a bit of a lifeline for a lot of people oh. during that period. Would you agree or not? Uh, Peter says... Parents should be locked up if their children become addicted to social media. Uh, it's a form of neglect. Crikey, Peter, you're not messing around. Alex, again, says similar things. Social media has become all the problems of our society. Um, Josephine says, parents need to parent. Carol, I like this one. Carol says, I work in a supermarket, Michelle, and I will wait for people to put their phones down before I serve them. Uh, she says children shouldn't have all of the latest telephones, etc. They blame the parents. That is an interesting one, actually, Carol, isn't it? Uh, I used to work on a checkout, so I did. Uh, but a little bit before everyone had mobile phones. And I've often thought, if you are a shop assistant or someone like that, and a customer walks up and doesn't really pay attention because they're busy, sh are you being rude to the shop assistant by yes, carrying you are. on? Are yes, you? you are. Carol thinks you are. Do you think you're being rude? You think, yeah, I, I used to do customer service. I think that's rude. Yeah. You have to at least make that I'm really sorry face. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I think it's rude. When, I mean, when I worked in the pub, I remember someone came in and uh, put a couple of dead pigeons on the on the bar. So I think that there's, dead there's a pigeons? good day. Yeah, it what, was a far, farming community. Oh, yeah, he was, yeah. was exchanging it for a pint with a friend. Oh, um, right. So I've seen it all when it comes to that kind of thing. But no, we, uh, but this is going back to the common courtesy. You know, in a way, the, these two having it out at the start. It's a bit of symptomatic of the state we're in, you know. What can't people just should be more decent to each other in the street? I, I still say hello to people when I walk past them, and only four or five times do you? I get shouted at. Yeah, I do. do they look at you like you're a weirdo? They do. They, or do they, say you hello know, they, back? they really do. It's my own personal weird vendetta. All right, there you go. Make people uh, feel uncomfortable by saying hello. I always say like when I'm leaving somewhere, I go right. Okay, I'll see you later. I'm sorry I made you uncomfortable by being polite. By being nice. <laughs> by being nice.
Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Dubry. A quick reminder as to who's keeping me company tonight. We've got PR consultant Alex Dean, Chair of the Oxford Conservatives, William Hull, and Labour Councillor, Pimana Assad. I've got to say, on this show, I do like going off-piste a little bit, having random conversations, often sparked by you at home. I like it. Uh, you're, if you've just been watching a second ago, you'll know that a viewer emailed in uh, saying about national service, which prompted a debate here. And you guys have been flying in with your emails talking about that, uh, whether or not we should have some form of national service. Some of you have got to say a very split... Uh, Kelvin says, no, we do not want national service. People in the military are there because they want to be. Uh, that seems to be a sense that's coming through quite a lot. Jason says, if we reinvested in discipline and schools, etc., we simply wouldn't need anything like national service. Uh, Pauline says, I wish my husband had been required to do his national service. He missed it by months. If he did it, he'd be able to make a bed, an iron and cook just for starters says Pauline. There you go, national service, just so your fellas can learn how to make the bed. I think women would be loving that idea, wouldn't they? Right, let's move on and get back on script, shall I? It's been 10 years today since Theresa May declared that she wanted to make the UK a hostile environment for migrants who come here illegally. Since the start of the year alone, uh, there has been, get this, over 9,000 arrivals across the channel by boat. Many of them, of course, in three, four-star hotels as we speak, which got me wondering, what did you even make to the hostile environment in the first place? Was it right? Was it wrong? Did it work? Pemana, what's your thoughts on it all? Um, <clears throat> so I think that this has really ruined the reputation of the Home Office. Um, the Home Office now is seen as being a racist, xenophobic and, quite frankly, cruel department in the eyes of um, many people. And I think that it's, you know, created tensions between different race communities in the UK where some people who who feel like they're being looked at with suspicion. Um, and we've seen, you know, from uh, an Institute for Public Policy Research report in 2020, which said that some people were forced into destitution by the hostile environment and some people were targeted even though they had the legal right to live in the UK. And we can see that through things like the Windrush scandal um, that happened. So I think that it's a real shame um, that this has been the view on immigration in the UK for so long. And I know that this is not just something that was started by the Conservative Party. This was something that actually came in with New Labour in 2007 and actually became initial policy under... But the don't you think that but we should be hostile to people illegally? So I think, that, to... I think the entire debate around immigration is is quite hostile in, 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 in essence because we don't really look at trying to understand why people are coming here, for what reasons they're coming here. We don't get people coming here from nice places. We get people coming here from places that they feel their life is in danger. Well, and so well they that's come from France often, don't we, when they're crossing the Channel, Pimata? Well, Well, you have to try and look at where from France they've, you know, that journey has come from. You but know, they're Somalia, in France, Somalia, Iran, Afghanistan. These are the places that they're coming from. But and then those they're places in France. are insecure. So I think that... But but there are secure, reasons. But here's the thing. Here's, what people don't understand is the reason why they want to come to the UK is maybe they speak English. And they don't just want a safe place to stay. They want to start a life. That's actually, a good that's a good reason to be an economic migrant. It's not well, a good reason to be a refugee or an asylum seeker. My family were refugees and they came here for two reasons. One, because they were being persecuted in Afghanistan. And two, because it was not safe to stay. And three, because there was no future. And they so came lawfully, didn't they? Yeah, and they 
they came, we, I, came, I landed at London Heathrow Airport and we had a letter from the United Nations saying that we were refugees. And that's however, all the difference but, in the world. However, some people don't have access to those safe routes. Some people don't have the ability, the education, attainment, or whatever it is, to try and access the, the networks or the ability to get here through those safe routes. Safe routes have been diminished completely. There is no way that an, a migrant can, for example, say from their country of origin, I would like to become an immigrant that's a, that's to the a, United States. That's Kingdom, a great reason. The UK. That's a great reason to grow and enhance the safe routes to come to this yes, country. Yes, I agree. It with is that. not a good reason to come to allow people to come unlawfully, and I think that the problem with the so-called hostile environment policy for the last ten years is that it hasn't been hostile. As a matter, it's a bit like when the, it's a classic conservative problem. We said that we would have austerity, and government spending kept going up. You get all of the criticism for the, announcing what the policy is going to be, and then actually. The real substance of it, which people expect to be uh, robust and conservative, you haven't delivered on yet. The difference now is what the Home Office is doing today with the Rwanda policy. Now, that is a hostile environment. That is something that uh, may uh, change people's minds about coming to the UK. Well, it but, don't seem to have. Well, well but my point is going to be the jury, the jury will be out as to whether it has a broader effect. Because, first of all, it's got to happen, hasn't it? I don't agree. I think the hostile environment is hostile. No recourse to public funds. You know, as a local councillor, I've had individuals come to the council saying we don't have access to any funding or any support. And, the, you know, we're waiting for, a, for an outcome on our asylum. And claim. we're not allowed to work. Yeah, exactly. That's so how? So that's forcing people into destitution. It's forcing people to do take up, you know, cash in hand jobs and various other things, which also makes it. Banana, people are put up in very nice hotels and given spending money, they're given access to funding for their pr uh, processes and all the rest of it. Some would, in fact, I know that more than some, will be watching this and shouting at the television that that is not the definition of hostile reception. Uh, William, your thoughts? I think it's very important distinction that Alex is drawing between legal immigration and illegal immigration. If people have come to the UK for an illegal route, then they have broken the law. And they may have very, very sad stories. They may have really, really tragic circumstances that should, and with a, with a decent society, would elicit a good response from us and, 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 a, and, a, and a kind response from us, a country, by the way, that has been a refuge for immigrants in crisis for hundreds of years. But if they have come here and broken the law, we should not then have an amnesty because it will only do one thing. It will drive already vulnerable people into the hands of people traffickers and into people who will just exploit that vulnerability and make it worse. I'm reminded time and time again um, about how these people are making crossings across the channel and they're coming here. And then we have these media reports about you know, people being booked up in fancy hotels and Nigel Farage doing these videos. To what extent that's true, I don't know. What I do know is... What do you mean, to what extent, what's true? Well, it's, 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 it seems to me with the Rwanda policy, for instance, is a good example of how we can change... Um, the way in which people are greeted to not be as incentivizing, and how we can actually shift um, the way the policy works to more practical. Well, it's absolutely system. true, though, isn't it? We spend uh, around about five million pounds a day on hotels for people yeah, at the moment, and, and, and there are people living in hotels in in, in the areas that I'm from, um, and they are uh, there in the communities, and it is not good for them, and it's not good for the people who live in those communities, and it's highly dysfunctional. Uh, I, 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 let me just finish for a second. I think it's very, very clear that the system is broken because if it weren't broken, then we wouldn't have such 
size of this debate. What we do need, though, is to take the opportunity from Brexit and have a genuinely global and welcoming policy to, immigra to immigration when people go through the legal routes. I think that's exactly what the government is doing. I think it's a good step forward. Alex? I was going to seize on and agree with your point that it's not good for them either, mm. because it, it must be soul-destroying to be waiting month after, whatever the rights and wrongs of your case, and let, even for someone who has no case. and It, it, it must be <coughs> soul-destroying to wait for months for the, the process to conclude. We ought to process people very quickly. And that's that, I Fair think, not. is uh, one of the downfalls in the system. But you know what? As long as we send the message that it works to come here unlawfully in a boat across the channel, and, and frankly, it seems like it does, then more people will do so, putting themselves and others at huge danger in one of the busiest bodies of water in the world. I do think we need to also hold um, some of the countries that are pushing people here responsible. So it's very clear that France has been complicit in some of this some of this pushing people across the channel, and, and that has to stop immediately. Of course, Pamana, incredibly briefly, I've you, got like you, 10 you seconds. Can't, you can't, you'll continue to have people trafficking people and smuggling them into the UK on boats or whatever if you do not have safe routes. And if we have, we're spending £6 million a day on Afghan refugees still in holding hotels at the moment who have not been given homes in the UK, of course that's a waste of money. Of course that's not good for them or for us. I agree. And there needs to be a plan in place that actually looks at this in a totally different way than we currently are. Well, Ian has emailed in saying, Michelle, the government has let the people of this country down for the last 10 years with false promises to control illegal immigration. Well, that's all we've got time for tonight on Jubes and Co. Thank you very much to my panel uh, for your insights and thank you as well at home for your thoughts. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Co. the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time.